HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg. So happy to be here this morning coming to you live from Heritage Radio Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. A little shout out at the beginning of the show to remind you that you can download all the episodes of The Line and all your other favorite Heritage Radio Network shows on iTunes as well as Stitcher. And also they all live on our heritageradionetwork.org website. So if you're looking for a specific episode, maybe the 10,000th episode that we just recorded or any of the thousands of other episodes that have come over the years, you can go to that website and you can listen to any of them. Uh, let's get into today's episode. My guest is Jean Adamson. She's the owner of Vinegar Hill House. She's led some of the quintessential New York restaurants that have inspired many other restaurants and are now considered iconic institutions. In New York City, she has worked at, just to name a few of them, Tribeca Grill, Balthazar, Frank, Freeman's. In 2008, she opened her own restaurant, Vinegar Hill House. It's located in Vinegar Hill, a beautiful, quiet area of Brooklyn right on the East River. It's adjacent to Dumbo. If you've never been there, you should definitely go and check it out. It's a magical place that is entering its ninth year of business, Mm -hmm. which is an incredible accomplishment for any restaurant in any city. But we're talking about New York City here, where unfortunately we're seeing restaurants closing after two months of being in business. So this is... uh, Really, really uh, an incredible accomplishment. Jean is here to talk about her past cooking careers. And of course, we're going to talk about Vinegar Hill House. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, so the places that you've worked at before, uh, they all have a very strong, specific aesthetic. Perhaps you can attribute that to uh, Frank or Keith that, that run sort of these large restaurant empires. But um, often they're places that are now kind of over the years have been copied or uh, replicated. So I'll, I'll, I'll refer to those places sort of as like um, upscale accessible, and you can correct me if that's, that's wrong. But um, 
I want to know, like, Balthazar, it opened in 1997, Pastis, 1999, Freeman's, 2004. How do these places, how have they lasted so long? What is special about each one of those places that's allowed them to thrive and survive? I mean, I think Keith McNally's restaurants were just beautifully designed. Like, you wanted to go into those spaces because it, like, took you somewhere else. And then I think that um, what I found with the food there is that it was very consistent like so you go into this place you get that experience that you want and then also you get the same steak every single time you come and I think that people want that and the sort of the general consistency that you're talking about with like a Keith McNally restaurant how how is that accomplished in the kitchen I mean for people listening out there you go to uh Balthazar and you go there in 2005 and you go there in 2010, like things are going to be the same pretty much. How do they accomplish that at a restaurant like of that size and that does that amount of covers? I mean, I don't know. It was being a line cook there. You just did the same. It was repetitive. You did the same thing over and over and over. Like there was specials, but they were like the same specials that were like year to year or at this time we do this thing. So I think they also were big enough that it was like everything was in a book and you had like a reference to look at. I don't think that that happens as much in small restaurants because you don't have the time or the manpower to create all these documents to make sure that everything is exactly the same all the time. Um, And I think, you know, the chefs there, Riyadh and Lee, who I adore, um, they were just really good at figuring out, okay, well, so pre-portioning was a lot of the stuff that we did for, I mean, when I was a line cook there, we did 500 covers a night. Like, you couldn't just, like, wing it. You had to have everything kind of ready to go so that it was, like, in two minutes you could kind of turn out a dish. There's this crazy article in the New York Times, I think it came out maybe two or three years ago, I don't know if you saw it, about, it was sort of like a day in the life of Balthazar, and it Mm. went through, uh, it talked about how there are, there's just two or three guys that peel potatoes, right? And that uh, Balthazar stockpiles potatoes. They buy G-Pod potatoes and they keep them in some warehouse in New Jersey. That's true. So uh, I want to know about your personal specific experience there. When you you began there, uh, were you used to that sort of like regimented – it's it's a very corporate cooking environment compared to other restaurants. Can you speak a little bit about that? I mean, I don't think I was used to that, but I think I quickly adapted to that because I understood that it was what needed to be happen in order to get the things done on a daily basis. And so I kind of admired it a little bit. And it was like, it was organized. And I feel like I needed that at the time, that time in my life, I needed things to be kind of like, you come in at this time, you do this thing, then you just kind of go throughout your day. I think that that kind of you know, mise en place of your day, like really helped establish who I am as a person. Like I think about things in that way at home when I'm folding my laundry, like that's kind of what that afforded me. And my brain kind of works that way. So, you know, especially when I became a sous chef there and was expediting, like organizing things was really enjoyable for me, actually. I want to talk about you being a sous chef there. You were the first sous chef in the Keith McNally restaurant realm that was a female, correct? Across any of his restaurants. I believe so. I mean, there was a woman who I think he worked with, Rose, who was one of the chefs at the uh, River Cafe in London that I also worked at. And she was a chef with with him, and I can't remember where, but... Well, let's just say that you were either the first or the second. Sure. One of the first. What does that mean to you personally? And also, is there there something that... um, 
does it does it bother you that it that it took so long that these restaurants had been open and then that a woman had not been in a leadership role there what does that say to you about restaurant kitchens i mean let's date myself a little bit this was in 97 or something like Mm -hmm. that so it was a long time ago and i think that um you know his restaurants were beasts like i worked like upwards of 70 80 hours a week um so i just feel like i don't know i didn't really think about it i just was like okay i'm ready to work hard so let's just work hard i i mean i don't think that I just maybe the opportunity wasn't there for other women yet. Maybe there weren't enough women in the field at that time that wanted that because that's common now. Like you have women in restaurants all over the place and they're excellent workers. Like honestly, like some of the best people I've ever worked with. Um, So, I mean, I don't, I don't really know how to talk about that. I just am proud of myself that that was an opportunity that I was given. I think it um, defined me as a person and, um, he also like totally was really good to me, Keith McNally. How does becoming a sous chef at a restaurant of that size, of that stature, how does that uh, impact your leadership style? I'm curious about after you were the sous chef there and you moved on and you led other kitchens, yeah. what was maybe the biggest professional takeaway from working at... Um, at Keith McNally restaurants and at places of that size so that when you ended up going somewhere uh, maybe slightly smaller but also still really busy. I mean, Frank is still super busy I'm working mostly at Little Frankie's, just to clarify, okay. but sure. And uh, Freeman's, super busy, yeah. always has been. Like, the places that you led after that, what were takeaways uh, that that made you into the kitchen leader that you that you became? I think just being direct, but also being respectful and um, nice, you know, like ask people in a, in a nice way to do something for you. Um, you know, Keith McNally's restaurants were big places, but randomly were, they were nice. They were good bosses. They talked to you. You could go and ask them a question. And so I think being available to people um, or even telling people, like, if you don't understand how to do something, come and ask me and I'm not going to get mad at you about it. I'm actually just going to show you. So leading by example, like I'm someone who has no problem doing the dishes. I have no problem mopping the floor. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I just, I want people to also have fun because it's hard work. Did you ever work anywhere that wasn't busy or successful or popular? Because I'm looking at the list no. of restaurants that you worked. <laughs> that's that's unique. Uh, you, you haven't really ever experienced what it's like to be uh, at a restaurant where people don't come every single night. And uh, We had a little bit of a, you know, unfortunateness with we opened a small space next to Vinegar Hill that has now since closed. Hills? Hillside. Hillside. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how that felt? You know, I mean, like, it, you, you had tremendous success with Vinegar Hill. It's been open a very long time. Yeah. People love it. Still doing great. And it is, I think we can talk a little bit about Vinegar Hill in a second, but let's talk about how does that feel as a, as a business owner? You know, you went from growth to growth, success to success, consulting to opening up your own restaurant, you know, being a chef of a, a Freeman's. How does that feel to have something that you put a lot of effort into um, not, not, ex- not exist anymore? It's heartbreaking. It's like, um, I think the hardest part for that was uh, my partner and partner in life, Sam, 
like design that restaurant and it, it was like so beautiful it was like the most beautiful space and I think that it was also a learning experience because it wasn't set up to not be successful it just we're a destination restaurant Vinegar Hill we're the only thing in Vinegar Hill and we kind of became competition for ourselves and I think that even though we tried to diversify what we offered or have it be a little bit different than Vinegar Hill it just wasn't different enough um like now it seems like Cafe Jeton has taken over that space and I think that they might do really great there and I think that we could complement each other in an, an amazing way. Um, so it's just hard because it's like, I don't see it as not being a success. Maybe it wasn't the right time or it wasn't the right space for that concept. Um, so it was more like a learning experience, but it was definitely super sad. I was like really bummed out about it. Let's transition from that not necessarily working out at the right time to Vinegar Hill being at the right time yeah. in a place that I think if you would have brought somebody there in 2007 and said, let's do a restaurant here, they may have thought that you're a little bit crazy. It's yes. still isolated. It's still sort of by New York City standards in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Uh, for people that haven't been there, uh, it's on a, a side street, a cobblestone side street that What's the closest train? A 10-minute walk away? Yeah, One, a the 15 F walk? train to York Street, which is the first stop in Brooklyn from Manhattan, by the way. The But when you look at a map, it's right by the East River, it's by Dumbo, it's by the bridges, it's in this beautiful area. The thing that always strikes me about Vinegar Hill, and it was one of the first restaurants that I went to when I moved here, oh, cool. is uh, that it has, its, it has an internal heartbeat. The restaurant has its own... It has its own shape and form and function to it. That is the aesthetics and the food feeding it. But also there's something about it being sort of like a magical cottage that you stumble into Mm -hmm. on a side street. Uh, Is all of that intentional? Is some of it come over time of being part of the fabric of the neighborhood? How did you and Sam build out the space and build out the menu so that Vinegar Hill became what Vinegar Hill is now known as right. and what people try to sort of replicate as being like this it is such a Brooklyn restaurant right. now but how did it start off? Look basically what happened was um, I lived in Park Slope at the time and my landlord um, well I'll, I'll, I'll move back Sam and I both worked at Freeman's together and he was helping Tavo um, build. They were expanding. They've, I think, ex- expanded three times now, but it was their first, like, expansion, um, which is when I kind of came on because they were going from, like, a 40-seat restaurant to an 80-seat restaurant, and they had a consulting chef, and they are like, maybe we need a full-time person, and that was me. Um, but anyway, um, so in that process, I met Sam, and we kind of, like, became friends, and one day there wasn't a lot of work to do, so we ended up driving around Brooklyn and talking about the places that we like. Went to a shawarma place place out on 86th and Bay Ridge, if you're Karam. Have you been to that place? I haven't, no. And then we ended up in Red Hook before Fairway was there, and it was just those, like, ferry cars on the, the... out on the water over there. And then we, the last place that we were was in Vinegar Hill. We'd both ridden our bikes down there on our cobblestone streets. And we were just like, oh, this is like an amazing neighborhood. And I'm not kidding. The next day, my landlord from Park Slope calls me. He's like, hey, I have like all this space in Vinegar Hill and I have this carriage house. Maybe you would like to move. So he was just trying to like, I mean, I had a 
two bedroom, two bathroom apartment in Park Slope that I was paying like eighteen hundred dollars for, which is super cheap for what it was. Um, <clears throat> maybe you want to move to Finnegar Hill, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I was just talking about this yesterday. I l- rode my bike down that day. I saw the carriage house, and I was just like, this is insane. Like it's, I don't know if you remember seeing that, but it's behind the restaurant. <clears throat> So I was like, yeah, I'll take it. Like, I'm moving here, no problem. Um, But then I kind of talked to Sam about that, and I was like, this is really weird, like, how this happened. Should we go, like, ask him what other spaces he has around here? Because we were really, like, into that neighborhood. It's beautiful. Um, And so, like, a week later, we, like, approached him about maybe some rental space for a restaurant. And it just kind of, like, all fell in our laps at that point. And we were super nervous because we were like, how are people going to come here? Like, we know that this neighborhood, like, there's telephone poles there. There's, you know, like, it's, it's, you feel like you're in the country there. Um, I just, I honestly think it was a lot of luck. And, I don't know, just kind of, like, developed from then. It was, it was someone's apartment. We, like, took everything out of it, but we put, like, a lot of stuff back because we didn't have any money. We built the restaurant, like... We were just kind of scavenging for stuff to kind of create a feeling. Um, Like a lot of panels came down and got painted and were like the wall to give texture to the wall. Uh, It was just kind of organic. and. So you opened Freeman's in 2008? I opened Vinegar Hill in 2008. Sorry, 2008. And um, when did you leave Freeman's in order to start working on Vinegar Hill? I think it was like 2007. I think there was only like a six-month period where we were kind of building stuff out, maybe even a little bit less. And you opened, and what happens once you open this restaurant in an area that probably a lot of people in Brooklyn had never even heard of before? They said, Vinegar Hill, I'm not really sure where that is, or, you know, how do I get there? What What's the first six months feel like and look like for you? Magic. Like, it was amazing. I think also we were, you know, I, having worked in all of these Manhattan restaurants where there was such competition and then trying to open my own restaurant, like, basically with the money out of my back pocket and not knowing what I was doing, we really, like, just leaned on our friends. And it was amazing. Like, people that would just help us, like... Zeb from Union, Union Pool. I remember talking to Carolyn Fidanzo or all the guys at Roberta's, like, really helped me out. Brent from the Meat Hook. Like, these were all people that, like, just kind of came together to, like, help us figure this thing out. And we never had that community before. And I think that because of that positive start, it it felt positive in there from the minute. I mean, from the get. Like, all the people that worked there were my friends. And it was just, like, super fun. We were having, like, the best time ever. And I think that because of that, it just pulled people in. It was, like, just pushing forward, like, this positive happiness. And so because of that, we were cranking, like, from day one. Like, we ran out of... I mean, I was, like, getting up at 8 o'clock in the morning every day to, like, cook food. The menu was, like, tiny. But we ran out of food every single day. Like, I was like, ugh. I, 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 two cooks. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um... So I think that just, like, having that positive start, like, really actually just spread really good word of mouth, like, right from the beginning. Once you were a year in, do you get comfortable as a business owner, as a restaurant owner? At what point – you've been around now for – by the standards of New York City restaurants for an eternity. Yeah. Have you ever gotten comfortable with the feeling like we're here – we're here to stay. 
do you f- ever feel untouchable or do you do you have conversely do you have days where you're still freaking out even almost 10 years in every day it's the restaurant business i you know i i think every day is a challenge and every day like i'm always trying to push forward growth like i don't want to stagnate and i think that you can do that really easily when you're kind of resting on we're here. It's fine. Like everything's fine. Like I don't want to do that. I want to continue like trying to explore what food is now. Like, cause food now is totally different than what food was then. I mean, I had like spaghetti and meatballs on the menu and like, that's not what we serve at the restaurant now. And I, I'm, I'm happy about that. You know, and we were like now in our, including myself, fourth iteration of our chef. And each time I'm like, it's a new experience. And you are just trying to give that person an opportunity to do what they think that they can do, you know, and really be supportive of what the, where it came from. I think, uh, something that a lot of people listening, a lot of chefs and people that work on the line in restaurants always wonder is, there's a point where you reach the level where you're in charge of a restaurant. You become the chef. You become the CDC. You're the mm-hmm. executive chef. Mm-hmm. Then there's this whole other transition to where you become the owner. Mm-hmm. And you move away from the line and you have to relinquish a certain amount of power and mm-hmm. creative control. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that as someone who worked for years and years and years cooking every day, every day, every day? Now... You're not on the line every single day. You have someone that does that for you. What was that moment like when you transitioned out of the kitchen and said, now I'm now I'm more the owner than the chef and the creative visionary behind the restaurant? What did that feel like? It was hard. It was really hard. And I mean, I still have days where I want to be kind of involved um, and I still kind of am involved, but I really try to not discourage the people that are doing all the work from being able to feel like they are getting to explore themselves. Um, you know, I stepped out like probably at like year two, um, because I felt very, I was really impressed with the guy that we hired. His name was Brian and he was a really good cook. And I was like, okay, like I'm, this thing is going to need me and it's not, it doesn't need me to be on the line every single day. And so that was a choice that I had to make. I was like, okay, I'm going to give him this creative freedom in order for me to like learn how to be a business person. And that's what I I consider myself really good at now. Not good at, I'm still totally learning, but like I'm, I'm a, I'm a number cruncher now. You know what I mean? I'm a permit filler outer. Um, but I think I also still am super involved with the floor staff and even with the the kitchen staff about how I want the restaurant to feel. That doesn't mean that I'm putting dishes on the menu, but it still has a sense of feeling that I want to always be there that was there from the beginning, I think. When you say that you're now a number cruncher, I'm curious, what does your, I know there's no normal day, there's no normal week, but, uh, for people that want to hear sort of like the nitty gritty of the, the business side, mm-hmm. the, the, the boring mm-hmm. side, the filling out of the permits, what is that, where does that take you? What do you do now, now that you are 
in charge of the restaurant, but that you're not, you know, picking up dishes every single night. I have meetings with people mostly. And I mean, we're still always trying to um, find other revenue streams. I mean, we deliver through caviar. I do a Kickstarter corporate lunch. I do an Etsy corporate lunch. I um, am the concessionaire at a playhouse in Dumbo. Um, We're opening a new spot in Dumbo in the next couple of months. So, you know, it's like I think that actually me being able to remove myself from the kitchen afforded me an opportunity to help my business grow. Because I think that if I was stuck in the kitchen, there was no way that that was going to happen. I'm the type of person when I'm working, I'm working for 16 hours and I'm like head down. So, it you know... um, to go back to what the question was because I got it. No, I just want to know, like, you as a business Oh, what woman, I do every day. Yeah, I mean, um, beyond, beyond finding new revenue streams and, you know, expanding the business, which you now have the, the freedom to do. You have the hours in the day that have been mm-hmm. uh, opened up to you. What does that consist of? What does a day-to-day leading a restaurant look like from the books side of things? Um, you know, it, it looks a lot like reading P&Ls. You read P&Ls and you read P&Ls with the people that spend your money and you talk about how that's being spent. It looks a lot like making sure that we're DOH compliant. It, you know, I run a lot of errands for the restaurant to be supportive, to make sure that we have the plates, the glassware, all the things that we need. From a maintenance perspective, I mean, I do all of the maintenance and our building is was built in 1890s. So there's a lot of issues that are kind of constantly coming up in there's a lot of people that are looking to me to help them do their job properly and I really try to be there to offer that for them because I know that if you're working a service and you don't have any rocks glasses it can be really kind of annoying so I want to like not have the people that are working there have those issues make it just as easy as possible to then give the customer service. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be right back (coughs) with Gene Adamson here on the line on Heritage Radio. chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth so when shopping for your ingredients look for the new york state grown and certified seal it lets you know which food is grown right right here in new york state certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard you'll not only be serving local food you'll be supporting local farmers Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I'm here with Jean Adamson. She's the owner of Vinegar Hill House in Vinegar Hill. We were talking about all of her past cooking experience and what it's like to lead the restaurant now that she's no longer in the kitchen every single day but now i want to jump way 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 back to the beginning to salt lake city okay you grew up in salt lake city yeah i want to know what was that like was uh were you were you dying to get out was it a super pleasant upbringing i think um, unfortunately what most people know about salt lake city is that it's the home of the the Mormon church. Which I was raised. Which you were raised. And so I want to know about what was it like to grow up 
Mormon in Salt Lake City. And how did you end up in New York City cooking? I mean, it was awesome growing up in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is beautiful. You have, like, access to the outdoors, like, 20 minutes from your house. Um, I grew up camping in southern Utah, like, four or five times a year with my family. Um, And honestly, being raised Mormon, like, there's great values in that religion. There's some stuff about it that's a little kooky, but um, it's all about being a good person and being like there for your family and I totally respect that and that's something that I um, still believe in today uh, you know I think it was a you were a little wild because there was that such strong religious pull there so in high school um, partying got a little crazy um, mixed with like teenage angst I don't know um, is that a typical thing that like in SLC, like the partying is intense because people grew up Mormon, or do you think it's sort of like normal high school rebellion? Everyone a does bit, a little something. I think it's a little bit of both, but I mean, I had a lot of uh, friends die actually, like uh, four or five people in my high school, like died from either drug overdoses or because it's so intense. The you want to go to the other end of the spectrum. I think so, and also it's just a, it's kind of like, for lack of a better word, it's an extreme place. Like people, like you can be skiing in twenty minutes, and so like there's also danger. Like we knew two people who died in avalanches in high school, or there's just like a lot pushing against. It's like the religion pushing against, like kind of like the outdoor kind of extreme culture. I think was part of the reason why there was a lot of heavy partying there. And so, what was that like, being a kid? And, like, what was your family like? It was awesome. Were you a food family? Were you always really interested in cooking growing up? I don't know, really. My Um, mom says I was. I haven't spent much time in Utah, but what's the traditional, like, what do do you guys eat, you know? Well, it's big families, so there's a lot of casseroles. Okay. And uh, for the Mormon women, there's a lot of Diet Coke. There's a lot of ice cream. There's a lot of sugar consumption because, like, the religion, you don't drink or smoke cigarettes. I don't know if you know anything about that, but... um, No, I thought no caffeine. I I think that they kind of, like, no coffee. Okay. But so they, like, kind of, like, let that go a little bit, and there's, like, a ton of Diet Coke that's being consumed. Like, those are... People in Utah will go get a big gulp in the morning and, instead of having a cup of coffee kind of thing. Um, but from, like, a f- food perspective, it was, like, a lot of, like, potato casseroles. And, like, my mom made, like, chicken casseroles all the time and jello and, like, kind of things that I'm, like, super into now. Um, but I didn't eat a lot of fish. We were landlocked. We had, like, specific nights because Mormons are also big families. I mean, I have three siblings and so we were like on the small side I have like other friends that had six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve kids in their family so you're trying to feed a lot of people kind of quick and probably on a budget um so but my mom was kind of a little uh hippy dip in her um parent she was by the time she was 23 years old she had three children so she um was crafty and she did a lot of canning. We had so she did tons of canning. She made her own granola. She made her own yogurt. She made rolls. Like my mom was like really good in the kitchen as far as like giving you that comfort because she made a lot of the things that we ate, which was really nice. Um, but from like an exploring kind of food perspective, I don't think that that really existed. I think that if you were to like look at it as a big 
whole thing, the food is probably kind of bland and white. And so from there, how do you end up getting interested in food? You went to FCI. Yeah. How's that transition from Utah to New York? I basically started cooking. I started working in restaurants when I was like 15 as a busser. My sister was a waitress at a restaurant, and I started working there. Do you remember which restaurant? It was called the American Grill. Okay. Um, and it was an open kitchen, and so like, and they just like tossed pastas basically. Like there was all these like different types of pastas, and they had these like really bad pita bread and honey butter that you used to get. Um, but I was really fascinated by watching the guys back there. They like used to flambe everything, which I think they were just like burning off oil. It was probably totally gross. Um, but it looked so dramatic. And it cool. did. It did. It looked really cool. Um, and so I started prepping there when I was probably 15 years old. I was like, I want to like you know like be in the mix. A yeah, bit. see what's happening. And made huge vats of. Italian dressing, like five gallon buckets of Italian dressing, and like cut through like 20 cases of boneless, skinless chicken breasts. Um, but I still was drawn to it. I still thought that it was kind of interesting, and I liked kind of like going around and trying all the stuff. Um, so from there, I just really started cooking. And by the time um, I moved here, I think when I was 22, so fast forward like seven years later, I had cooked in multiple restaurants in Salt Lake City. I was like a sous chef in a restaurant there. Um, but I just felt like my one of my best friends at the time was like, I think that we need to take this to the next level. We need to go to the French Culinary Institute in New York because my girlfriend lives there, and that's where we should go. Um, so I was like, okay. I mean, I was, I was ready to change. I knew that I didn't want to like always be in Salt Lake. Um... So I, I applied and I, I got in. I mean, purely based off of the, the fact that I had the money to pay for it. It's not like you have to, like, try to get into this school. Um, Culture shock upon arriving in New York, or were you ready for it? Yeah, but I was excited. I mean, I was super lonely. Like, I didn't know how to kind of deal with that. But you, who cares when you're working a full-time job and then going to school at night, like, so where did you live? <clears throat> I lived in Park Slope, actually. And you worked at Tribeca Grill while you were in school. Yes. How did you manage that time-wise? It sounds intense. So you went to school all day and then you went no, to I, the restaurant? The school, the, the way the program that I chose was a night school. And okay. so I worked all day and then I went to school at night. So you were working five days a week at Tribeca? Yeah. And I made $250 a week, by the way. That's what I made. Ouch. That is, uh, so your first job in New York is simultaneously while you're going to culinary school. Did you, did you internalize what sounds like a pretty drastic struggle financially and from a mental state and say, like, I'm going to overcome this? Or were you loving it and is exactly where you wanted to be? What was the feeling like? Was there a moment of, I'm not going to make it? Was there a moment of... I think that maybe I'm not cut out for this, or we, no. did you always have it? I, I, um, I've been told a couple of times that I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good plater. I, I take direction very well. You tell me something once, I'm in. So from that perspective, I felt like I was succeeding. Like you were telling me to do something, and I did it. You know, like I was no stranger to working hard. Like those days didn't seem that long to me. Um, I definitely was probably burning the candle a little bit at both ends, but that kind of felt like how I needed to sustain that, uh, how hard I was feeling like I was working. Um, 
no, I, I mean, even I just push through, like, and I kind of feel uh, satisfied that I was accomplishing things. I mean, from Tribeca Grill, I moved to Balthazar, and then in like two years, I was a sous chef at Balthazar. So I was like seeing success, like pretty early, honestly. It seems, you know, just the scope of how long you've spent in New York and the fact that you went to culinary school here, have worked in a lot of restaurants, and now are a restaurant owner, uh, you have a unique perspective that I want to mine a little bit. What are the things that are scaring you the most about what is happening in current the re- current le- restaurant landscape? And is there something that you miss that's disappeared from the 90s or the 2000s that you that you wish could come back again come back around and if that's too vague of a question you can just kind of focus on what things are uh maybe scaring you or upsetting you about the current restaurant landscape all right well what i miss is i actually miss being a line cook in the regards of like just that responsibility like you just went in you set up your station you had a successful night you didn't have a successful night you knew how to adjust like that was just like really easy to do you know and even if you were working really hard like you could find little moments of success and everything oh like i really seared that steak well or ooh the skin on that fish looks really good um so i often think about like going back and just like oh if i could just pick up like one night at this cool place or like just to kind of continue to grow that way that still is something that i miss is like exploring food and like growing from a chef's perspective um so that's what i would wish i could have back um what scares me now as a business owner which is like a vastly different thing um is just how hard it is to be a business owner and how hard it is to make ends meet. I mean, I've created like multiple revenue and streams for myself and we're still a successful restaurant, but it just seems like things are more and more expensive all the time. I think our insurance just keeps on going up. Um, so it's really hard, much harder, I think, um, from, and I also think it's from scale, like to be someone of my size, I'm a 40 seat restaurant that has a private dining room, so it can be 60 or it has a backyard, so it can be 60, but there's times when we're just 40 seats and to try to like afford all of the things that you need to run that restaurant. It's very, very difficult. And so that's what keeps me up at night. And that's the constant challenge that I'm trying to like make quick, fast adjustments, but also ones that are kind of thought out. And how do you do that? You know, do you see a day in which you will no longer want to be doing this? And if yes, is there something else that you've thought about maybe doing down the line? Well, we're opening a new space, so I'm actually re... You're re- doubling down. Yes, I'm doubling down. Um, it's a different concept. It's not a sit-down restaurant, but um, so we'll see how that whole... Is that the Dumbo spot? Yeah. Cool. Um, so that's a whole other learning curve, which I'm kind of excited about, knowing the things that I know now. What's that going to be like? Can you speak to any yeah. specifics of what that product is I mean, is I like? think that we think what it's going to be like is it's kind of like a takeaway restaurant. It's prepared food, so you can kind of come in, and we have these, like, big display cases with, you know, seasonal salads, and there's a coffee element, um, and, like, pastries. And then we're trying to kind of, like, maybe incorporate whole animal butchery and have that be kind of the 
one of the other focuses where you can get briskets or smoked chickens, like kind of by the pound and then add on all these like super fresh, like high acid salads and stuff to kind of complement those fatty meats. Um, our chef Mike has like really, um, forged a great relationship with a meat company that we really like, um, this happy Valley meats. Um, so I don't know. So that's a whole other learning curve and I'm going to try to spin out home delivery in that and just like try all these different things. Um, but yeah, do I see a future where I'm not doing this? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm a mother now. I have a son, he's three years old. Um, and so that really changes perspective a little bit. And I've lived in New York for over 20 years or close to 20 years. And so I'm also like, is it time for a life change in that regard? And um, I know that I'm here for the next three years for sure. But yeah, I think I'm ready to kind of slow down. And I think that that might be making books. I'd like to like make books for moms that need some help figuring out how to get a meal mean? on the table. What do you mean by books? Like cookbooks. recipe books, cookbooks? Yeah. Cool. Go into that. I want to hear more about cookbooks. I mean, I don't know. I haven't really explored the idea. I just feel like um, I'm really good at pantry building as a way to diversify the boringness that I think that we, the ruts. And I mean, personally, I, I get stuck in ruts cooking at home all the time. And I um, like have my repertoire. And so like as a chef, like I, I think that my repertoire is pretty big. But sometimes I'm like, this is really like limited. Like I buy the same stuff every single time I'm at the store. So um, just trying to help people uh, kind of eat a little bit better and make things kind of quick and just put some healthy food on the table. That's, I think, maybe what I want to try to do. It's salad heavy. It's pretty amazing that even though the United States as a whole has been moving closer to eating organic, eating healthy, eating fresh that there are still so many bad habits out there. Yeah. As uh, as a restaurant owner, as someone who's visible, what do you think our responsibility is as restaurant owners beyond just feeding people in our communities? Do you think that we have an additional responsibility to take on all these extras about, uh, you know, teaching and being responsible and being good advocates for for various issues or um do you think that's putting a lot of undue pressure on on chefs as we become more visible in the landscape i think we definitely have a responsibility to try to um provide a, a little bit of education i mean for us that just starts with sourcing like we try to be um source as responsibly as possible you know i think that um, then that just ends up on your plate inevitably. I mean, some a carrot that's like grown 15 miles away is going to taste better than a carrot that's grown a thousand miles away. That's just the truth. So you know, I, I don't think that it's like you have to put this undue pressure on it, and it's like something that you need to shove down people's throat, which we've like never done that. Um, but I think that trying to just do it because it's the right thing to do. You know, um, I think garbage is something that needs to be addressed. Like our, how we try to compost more. I think that that's something that we should really try to do and recycle, um, as a business. And it's kind of difficult, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I think that in 
being someplace that, again, like going back to that, like not stagnating, I think you just kind of constantly have to address, uh, adjust and continue to try. You just have to continue to move forward because otherwise you're just kind of doing the this, this same thing. And who, who, who wants to do that, right? Totally. Gene, thank you so much for being here on the line. Thanks. Appreciate you sharing all your stories with us and all your uh, exciting new projects. Tell everyone where they can find you at Vinegar Hill. What's the address of the restaurant? 72 Hudson Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Open seven days a week? Seven days a week, brunch on the weekends. Cool. Everyone, please go check out Vinegar Hill House if you've never been. It's a wonderful restaurant. Gene, thank you again. Everybody, head over to heritageradionetwork.org where you can download this episode and all the other episodes of The Line. And we'll see you next Tuesday, 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.